0: My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides. Making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy, while still maintaining respect for the art. Which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So, welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Apocalypse,
1: apocalypse.
0: Hello friends, this is Aaron Odom, your host for Euripides Humanities. I have a couple of announcements before we begin this episode. First of all, since I'm kind of new to the podcasting game, um, I have gained some pretty cool friends in the podcasting industry, and one of which is a fellow podcaster whose show I've really come to appreciate. If sometimes history can be a little difficult for you to follow. I can offer some help. On the new podcast The Life and Times of Frederick the Great host Alec Avdikov takes listeners step by step through a particularly complex piece of European history. And just like we do on Euripides Humanities, Alec presents a subject with charm and humor. Never thought I'd find myself laughing out loud at the history of Frederick the Great, but I'm happy to say that Alec made me do so. Here's one of my favorite lines that I've ever heard in a podcast so far quote: And have you seen the chins on those people? End quote. Had me rolling. So, check out The Life and Times of Frederick the Great. Each episode is only about 20 minutes long, and you'll feel a lot better about your understanding of history. You can check that out, The Life and Times of Frederick the Great, pretty much anywhere you can get a podcast. Now, since I said I'm kind of new to this podcasting thing, I need to offer a bit of an apology for today's episode. The feed on my guest's microphone was out of whack and that's my fault. I didn't really pay attention to it so I'm going to try to get through it as best I can. Hopefully you'll forgive me for that but I promise you the content of this episode is well worth waiting till the end for. It's also worth mentioning that today's episode features some very sexually explicit material so if there are those with fairly sensitive ears around you uh just be warned. Other than that, if you like today's episode or if you've liked us in the past, go ahead and follow us, like us on all kinds of social media, mention us to your friends, spread us around because we're not going to stop this. This is too much fun. And we're going to keep bringing you awesome content every two weeks. So hopefully you enjoy this. And now on with the show. Hello, my friends and listeners. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you again with another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. If you've been here before, I'm so glad you're still with us. If this is your first time, you are in for a treat today. Uh, We have a really remarkable guest with us today. Um, This is one of my best friends that I've ever made in theater uh, and we've kept up with each other and, and everything that we've been doing for the last several years, but that's on a personal level. Let's talk about a professional level. Uh, you may know this guest from ABC's The Middle, where she played one of the cheerleaders, or as the voice of Tara Branford in the Final Fantasy video games. If you have a toddler, they might know her as the voice of Goldie on uh, Disney Junior's Goldie and the Bear. Is that right? Goldie and, and the Bear or Goldie and Bear?
1: Goldie and Bear.
0: Uh, gosh, I don't watch those shows anymore. My kids. It's
1: like Cher, you know, she doesn't go by the Cher.
0: Oh, she's just Cher. Okay, so. Goldie He's Bear. And bear and if you're a musical theater geek you might remember her from the mtv broadway competition show legally blonde the search for Elwood's*, woods where she came in fifth place to play Elwood's woods on broadway and that was such a damn crime and i'm calling the cops now but anyway my friends and listeners this is my good old friend natalie lander hello natalie
1: Thanks for having me, and let me tell you, as your good old friend who's always also been such a big fan of yours, seeing you do well—I know—seeing people are listening, I get to see you because we're on Zoom. Seeing you and hearing you do this podcast really uh, makes me so happy, and you're you're really in your element. I'm proud of you, I'm a proud you, friend.
0: You, you. It's it's been such a fun time. It's been such a fun time. It's perfect. So this last year, Natalie has been fun for everyone. I mean, nonstop enjoyment and action and activity. But uh, (laughs) I mean, frankly, uh, here I am in Sheridan, Wyoming, you're in LA. Our numbers are going down a little bit. We're able to release some restrictions and everything. But in LA, it's still kind of a little shaky. But what was your pandemic like? What did you do during this whole pandemic situation?
1: Well, I, I definitely ate a lot, and <laughs> I actually, I did a lot of cooking, but I, I was able to stay creative. It was funny, when we when the whispers of the pandemic were first beginning to happen, and the idea that we would be all at home for two weeks, I produced two videos in the first two weeks of quarantine because I felt so much pressure that (laughs) if we didn't, if I didn't produce something in these two weeks, then I am a total loser. And so I did (laughs) two videos in the first two weeks of the pandemic and then literally did not do a single one after that because (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think it would be that long.
0: It's my understanding though that at least one of those went pretty viral, didn't
1: it? Right. I did a musical parody of my neck my back lick my kitty and my back well you guys can google the song but i changed the (laughs) lyrics um sit back relax with my netflix and my snacks and yes yeah
0: nobody um, did that i i brought it up (laughs) several times on this show like we've had people on this show from all walks of of different aspects of theater including you know um uh, you know, uh, acting and directing and producing as a profession to people who are just doing it on the, uh, on the community level and, and taking care of it in their spare time and everything. And a lot of the people in the latter category, you know, were told things like I was told, um, you know, I don't know about the arts. I just don't know if that's a career choice that people can pursue. And I'm like, yeah. Okay. Tell me how many shows you binge watched over the last year. And yeah. uh, tell me, tell me, we don't need a world with artists. Yeah. Right. I mean, Little Nas Nas X can come out and do this amazing music video and everybody's talking about it.
1: Right. I know. I mean, it's true. And it's like really the creative arts, I think, is what got a lot of non-artist people through the pandemic. What would we do with a time without... Netflix and Hulu and all the streaming services and obviously cable. And then Mm -hmm. also, if you think of short format, uh, short format content, like, you know, YouTube. And I mean, I watched Mm -hmm. so many things that I would never have seen before. And people were so creative. And then I got really depressed because I was like, I'll never be this good. Did you watch, um, (laughs) speaking of feeling depressed because i'll never be that good Is i watched bo burnham's netflix special called oh inside God.
0: it's on my list it's absolutely on my list
1: but you're gonna love time. it yes. and the you're last? gonna hate yourself <laughs> yep.
0: yep. now the last thing you recommended to me was the oh. podcast dead eyes and i got through the first season and i loved it so if so. any of you are looking for just an earworm during your work day um, it's not too terribly explicit. There are a couple F-bombs dropped every now and then, but it's this great story. It's this great story about not really feeling like you've realized your potential, even though maybe you have. There's just something like lingering in the past. It's, it's a really cool show. Dead Eyes by, uh, what's his name? Uh, Connor Ratliff. Before we get into the episode, you have a really cool thing. So right now, I, I would wager to say, that nostalgia is still the thing. I mean, I almost passed out the other day when I saw the He-Man trailer that's coming on Netflix and it's going to be like a one-shot thing and Kevin Smith had something to do with it. And I'm like, oh my God. But you have a voice role in an upcoming project that is really cool. I want you to tell me about that.
1: I do. And it was really one of those childhood dreams come true. And it's on the new Animaniacs reboot. Oh, Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) so fun. I did one episode and it's a really fun role. I, I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to say anything. They always like make you sign these really creepy NDAs that say like, (laughs) if you say something that like literally sue you for all your money in your entire existence. So anyway, it doesn't matter, but I so nerded out on it because I was such a huge fan of that show. And the other really fun part was that I actually didn't audition for it. They just called me. That's never happened to me before. And it turns out I worked with one of the writers on a different show that I worked on. And she was like, oh, Natalie Lander would be great for this part. I was so intimidated, though, because I thought, you know, Animaniacs, like, this is such a huge show. And I didn't audition. Like, what if I I do my session? And they're like, oh, we should have, like, read her first. But I think it was okay. I think it was okay.
0: Well, uh, I, won't, yeah. I won't say any more about it. I mean, once once the series premieres, we can all look it up on IMDb and figure out where you are. Uh-oh.
1: It's a really fun character. And actually Uh-oh. the character I play is kind of a parody on a pop culture figure right mm. now in, in our world. Mm. Mm.
0: I mean, will we be able to recognize that? That's the big question.
1: There's no way you could miss it. <laughs> Well, it's not cool. a subtle parody yes. that
0: is so yeah. great and, yeah. and beyond that i mean you still have like recurring things in video game and, and commercials and stuff like that and that's that's just great i've it's so fun for me to like see people i've worked with just pop up every now and then you're like no Yo, wow you're in this uh commercial for you know a casino that's amazing so living the dream oh well speaking of living the dream yes I'm ready to get into this episode right now. I don't know if you are or not, but I am, uh, I'm trying I, to bits.
1: Totally, I'm ready.
0: So, um, <gasps> I usually start these out with a question, but I'm not going to get to the question for just a couple moments. Now, I did cheat a little bit here for you. I usually don't tell my guests what we're going to be talking about. Now, I did give you something of a hint, and I don't know if you went and Googled it or anything like that, but I think I told you that this is going to be in relation to the last episode we did, which Mm -hmm. is about the city Dionysia, the the festival to the god Dionysus in ancient Greece every year. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, did you you do any research on that? No. Amazing! Okay, (laughs) here we go. (laughs) In the last episode, Mm -hmm. we talked quite a bit about the great Greek god Dionysus and the annual festival in the spring to his honor, the city Dionysia. This is arguably where theater as we know it first occurred and was performed in competition, all in praise of Dionysus. But the festival started with a procession through the streets of Athens known as the Pompeii. One particular feature was almost like a modern day parade float, and it carried something quite extraordinary on it. Amidst the men with barrels or bladders of wine that were intended for processional attendance, it was kind of like when candy is thrown at a parade. If you just wanted some wine, you could go get it. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm <sign laughs> here for that parade. Absolutely, right? <laughs> like, where is the Dionysian Festival, please? I brought my own. <laughs> or the procession of virginal women carrying boxes or baskets on their heads with sacrificial knives intended for the animal, or sometimes the human sacrifices that would take place on the theater's altar, this float was a must-have every year.
1: I don't think I like this parade anymore. You don't
0: like where this is going anymore?
1: <laughs> no, now now I'm like, I, I was all in with the wine and then the virgin sacrificing mm-hmm. thing, I'm out. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. it's not
0: the virgins being sacrificed. It's, oh, okay. It's just, they have the baskets on their heads and the baskets carry the instruments that will kill the thing that they're going to sacrifice. Cute. Okay, yeah, see? You're, you're, yeah, okay. All right.
1: Cute, like a hat.
0: <laughs> yeah, I will give you three guesses as to okay. what was carried on the float.
1: Okay, um... A goat?
0: No. Well, close, <laughs> but no.
1: Um, like one of those half goat men guys?
0: Ooh, we're getting closer. Yes, but there's something a little bit more specific.
1: More specific than that?
0: Uh-huh. That's pretty specific. Um, A goat belly? Oh! oh. A goat, oh, no, goat scrotum, a goat scrotum. Oh my God, it's so close. Okay, here we go.
1: I've never yelled, a goat scrotum. So, so oh. like... Desperately in my
0: life. <laughs> Since much of the visual history of ancient Greece is committed to pottery, most of what we can gather comes from the analysis of the images there. What mm. can be seen is a structure being carried through the streets on the backs of several men. Atop the structure is a man writing a large effigy of a satyr. Now that's the satyr. That's the the half human, half goat person you were talking about.
1: Oh my God.
0: So yeah, yeah. He's riding on top of a satyr who's like all fours holding on to something else. So the, the satyrs also, let me see, they had horns and tails. The bottom half of them was goat-like with the backward knees and all that. But there was another feature on the satyr that was quite prominent, and I'll get to that later. Now, as I've said, the man is writing the satyr, but the satyr is writing something altogether different. From what can be extrapolated from the vases, the satyr grasps an enormous model of a human penis from here on out, known as a phallus.
1: What? Okay. First of all, I was totally gonna guess that, but I thought that's two on the nose.
0: No way. Couldn't
1: the Greeks way. were so on the nose with the giant dick. No, <laughs>
0: on the nose. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here we go. Yeah, we're talking about the phallus today.
1: So it's a guy riding a half human, half goat who's riding a, a penis.
0: Yeah, and, and it's like it, it's a monkey grabbing onto a branch, just kind of holding on to it.
1: Sounds like my bachelorette party. <laughs>
0: Boo. The phallus is elaborately decorated, and as I mentioned before, is a key component of the Pompeii. It had to happen every year. But that's not the only phallus in the procession. Sometimes dozens of men in the procession will be carrying, quote, phallus poles, which are described as, quote, a long piece of timber with leather or perhaps figwood genitalia at the top, end quote.
1: (laughs) this really is a bachelorette party. This is amazing! I uh, feel like you picked this for me.
0: Now sometimes, rather than a man riding the phallus, it might be the statue of Dionysus riding the phallus. All in all, whatever was going on, the phallus was part of the procession. And then once the phallus reached the theater Dionysia, the Pompeii can continue.
1: Of course! <laughs> once it reached its peak, uh, it continues. Uh,
0: God, I love this. Oh God. I was gonna say oh it later. Like puns are, are are all yours for the rest
1: okay, of the Okay, let's go
0: for. Oh my god. (laughs) Now as heard in the last episode, the city Dionysia was the annual festival that honored the god Dionysus with several days of theater, something of a metaphysical ritual to prepare Greek citizens for a bountiful springtime. So the festival was all about shedding whatever from the winter that could be dragging a person down so they could be renewed for cultivating their crops for the forthcoming year. So I mean it really did have like a spiritual significance and once that thing happened you could move on to the next stage of the year. But I'm sure you're still wondering, what's with the big penis, though?
1: That's always what I'm wondering.
0: <laughs> now, in order to understand that, we have to put on our academic caps and talk a little bit about the sexual culture of ancient Greece without giggling every time we talk about genitals. Oh, no. Well, yeah, I mean... I mean uh, it's still. very immature. <laughs> well, and like I said, I mean, there still will be opportunity for puns. It's all part of the package. Oh, God. Oh, man. I mean, that's just low-hanging fruit. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Simply put, the sexuality that has been somewhat customary in the West for the past several centuries is not really too close to what was experienced in ancient Greece. Here's a quote about the difference between modern and ancient Greek sexual culture from the blog of historian David Krebs. Quote, for the last 2,000 years, we have, as a species, been subject to at first the Christian, and then the Islamic, suppression of non-procreative sex. Since the early 4th century CE edicts at the Byzantine Council of Nicaea against male same-sex activity, perhaps simply aimed at arresting some Greek philosophers who dissented from the new church doctrine, Christianity has sought to repress our sexual natures and confine our activities to strictly procreative acts.
1: Uh, So the Greeks are like, Kinky and into like things. Oh
0: my God. Yeah, here, here. Um, As I said, like in ancient Greece, this is definitely not the case. Kreps continues. In ancient times, then, the notion of sexuality as we understand it today simply did not pertain. People had sexual relations with each other, plain and simple, and such relations did not define who one was in any sense. It is therefore likely that many, if not most, were what we might consider today bisexual.
1: Wow. <laughs> so like the Greeks were totally
0: woke. They absolutely. Absolutely. Pride month, hell, pride year. Pride life. That's pride, amazing. Pride all the time, doesn't matter. Wow. Fact, check this out. The first okay. time the terms heterosexual and homosexual actually occurred, were in print by a Hungarian sexologist, Karl Maria Kurtbeni, in 1869.
1: Whoa, 69, what a year.
0: <laughs> sex was just sex, and there was not necessarily any idea of sexual identity or specific preference. But... There was some basic understanding, despite the fact that medicine then was not as advanced as it is today. Basically, it was understood that procreation, the birth of a new member of the species, was the result of the coupling of a male and female. That much seems obvious. Right. But without having any ideas that human females produced eggs and that human males produced sperm and the conjunction of sperm and egg created a fetus, the Greeks did understand that ejaculation had something to do with the pregnancy process. Wow. Right? I mean, it's just, it's just putting two and two together. Did you do the thing in her? No. Well, then she's not pregnant.
1: It was a little trial and error, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> now, in order for pregnancy to happen, the Greeks understood that the male must insert his penis into the female. Therefore, according to the Greeks, there's a definite hierarchy of power of sexual activity. Since the male must penetrate and the female must receive, it is therefore understood to the Greeks that the male is more dominant over the submissive female in this understanding. So therefore, the penis, as a concept, was wicked important in Greek life.
1: Wow, that's why they paraded it down the street.
0: Oh, that's one reason. That's one reason. (laughs) There are a few more. I mean, honestly, this could be where the entire idea of patriarchy began in the West.
1: Wow.
0: I mean, you know, they were just like, well, it's the thing that goes in the other thing. So it's it's like an invasive act in a way. So that means it's more dominant and therefore more powerful, right?
1: Wow, that is so crazy. <laughs> now,
0: how it got there is actually something of mythology. Of course, there are some more historical ways to look at it, but the legends are so much more colorful. So as listeners may recall from the last episode, at a young age, Dionysus was sent out into the world by his father, Zeus, and he roamed all over the place. When Alexander the Great vastly expanded the Greek borders, it is said that he discovered a village in India that was named after Dionysus because he went all over the place. Oh. <laughs> it couldn't have been that some sailor just went off course and, you know, landed in India. And he's like, well, I'm going to name a town. Right. <laughs> so through Dionysus's vast travels, and that one of his godly responsibilities is fertility, some of the rites and rituals he observed on his travels may have been adapted to Greek life. In fact, and this is where you were kind of hinting earlier, boy, the Greeks sure like their dicks. In fact, some historians claim that most of the phallic imagery that's seen in Greek culture very closely resembles some of the imagery from a civilization that is called the Indus River Valley Civilization, who basically inhabited the border of what is between now India and Pakistan. Oh. This civilization lasted from about 3300 BCE to 1300 BCE, whereas the Greek culture I'm referring to, known as classical Greece, mainly saw day in the 5th and 4th centuries BCE. So roughly twenty eight hundred to 900 years later. Wow. Okay? So over the course of centuries, it's not difficult to see how a belief structure may have traveled the better part of two continents and then be adapted to another culture. But back to the phallus.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, of course.
0: Oh, wait a minute. We're getting off track here. What about the dicks?
1: Yeah, um, let's get back to that.
0: Yeah. In the Indus River Valley civilization, they worshiped a god named Shiva. Shiva had the granddaddy of all phalli, and it was from his emissions... That life grew on the planet. Oh, okay. He just jacked off into existence.
1: (laughs) That guy sounds like he's not fun in (laughs) bed.
0: I'll do it myself. (laughs) (laughs) The Shivaic legend spread spread west and became more associated in an artwork with a motif known as the lord of animals it's an image of a man be like holding apart two fighting animals of the same species hence how the phallus became associated with dionysus who was associated mainly with nature and could change into a variety of animal forms so you see it's like it spread from this one place alexander kind of took it back it followed him very briefly there was this art piece that you'd see in different places between the indus river valley and greece at different eras and you're like, oh, well, you can watch it almost track the map from west uh, from east to west. Plus, as we learned in the last episode, while the city Dionysia was a festival primarily comprised of theatrical activity, as I was saying earlier, it's overall a festival to bring about a bountiful spring as it takes place just when spring is supposed to be in full swing, like the latter half of March, first half of April. Therefore, the phallus of Dionysus is supposed to be associated with the emergence of new
1: life. That makes sense.
0: Okay, you're like, I understand this is a sexual thing and sexual activity brings about new life, so honor the peepee. (laughs) <laughs> oh, and if you needed more proof that the phallus was important to the Greeks, all I need to mention is architecture. Come on. A society in which the staple architectural component is a thick, ornate
1: column? hmm <laughs> Yeah, it's very clear.
0: Absolutely phallic. I won't even get into obelisks or monuments which were inspired by Greek architecture like uh, the Washington Monument. <laughs> That's a big old dick. It's <laughs> a big old. I'm the god of America. Okay, okay.
1: Okay, we get it. I just love that the Greeks were so obsessed with the phallus and the new life. When really, what the you know, hello, it takes two to tango. Right,
0: right. Egg is be- equally
1: as important.
0: Uh no, because you could oh, you could overturn that. You could just be like, listen, you will give me seed now, and there you go. There you go. Now, however, mm-hmm. Greek sex was not always so pragmatic.
1: I feel like it would be very smelly. I don't know. Oh.
0: <laughs> There's lots of sweat and, ugh. Just, ugh. and
1: like sand. I don't know.
0: Make make sure you have your sandals tightened because you don't know what you're going to step in. Yeah. Um, Oof. And I'll say that, man, did those Greeks appreciate the pleasurable side of sex as well. One famous depiction is the Warren cup. Now, this is a silver drinking cup that was discovered uh, in the Greco-Roman age and possibly created between uh, 5 to 15 CE. So uh, it was named the Warren cup after the first person who actually owned it, according to British provenance. Mm -hmm. It's called the Warren cup. So um, I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to show you a picture of the Warren Cup, and I'd, I'd like you to describe what you're going to be seeing here.
1: Okay. Well, I see a silver goblet. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. I think. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to look closer. It looks like there's two gentlemen, mm-hmm. and they're sort of like spooning, Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. but... I'm gonna guess. Oh wait, no, I think I see some buttocks uh-huh. and and some penisage. Oh yeah. Going yeah. Yeah. towards the buttocks.
0: Yeah, right deep in there.
1: Yeah, this is like full uh-huh. penetration.
0: Yep. Wow. Yep. Yep.
1: He looks so the guy on top looks so <laughs> calm and laissez faire about it. He's like, oh. Is it in? That's what he said.
0: You never heard of a <laughs> horror play?
1: Yeah. And the other they actually look like twins. I mean, they have the same face. Oh. Hey, you never know. You never know.
0: I hear there's this thing where sometimes you're looking for the person that looks the most like you or is comp- comparable to you in sexual. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. That could be. Jared
1: and I always, people, whenever we're together, they always <laughs> think we're brother and sister, like no fail. And they were like, no, we're married. And they're like,
0: oh, oh that's weird. Um, <laughs> anyway. This is not the only imagery like this. Wow. Cups and bases and mosaics have plenty of depictions of sex acts, and we have to assume that because of their frequency, the acts are not considered out of the norm. In fact, there are actual laws and practices which are laid out in detail.
1: Well, I would also think someone etched this into silver.
0: Oh, yeah, you had to actually bang all that out with a little hammer and a little chisel. It
1: took time. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Oh, I didn't get okay. my penis right. Damn it. Um, yeah. We'll just put it inside. Just put a buttock over it. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now this, this is going to... I, I'm going to take a dark turn here for a moment. I'm just uh, letting you know ahead of time. Okay. One such practice that is laid out in detail is the accepted practice and codified procedure of an older man being able to lawfully take a young boy as a sexual lover.
1: Wow. Now, I want
0: to express here and now that I do not condone the taking of young boys for sexual purposes. I am simply relaying information for the purpose of understanding the culture present at the time. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... This was suggested to me a long time ago when I was first studying this. It's like, yeah, often men would take young boys as lovers. Anyway, back to Euripides, you're like, well, <laughs> hold on, what? So, yeah, it right. took, took me down some dark rabbit holes here. So here's how it went. <clears throat> An older aristocratic male would kidnap a young boy from a family of higher social standing. Kidnap. Kidnap. What? Yep. Oh, but my god. The gosh. older man, the older man who does the kidnapping, would get consent from the boy's father first.
1: Oh my god, could you imagine no, I mean don't even try to imagine that that's nope.
0: I could play that out right now. I don't want to. I would- I
1: feel like that is a dateline episode that I saw recently. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe like a new Netflix, like a really edgy Netflix series, and then like the boy fights back and
0: just a guy in a toga shows up in a family room somewhere and there's the guy who's like, Hey, what are you doing here? Yeah. Let's, Let's have a talk. What's that guy's name, Chris something? Oh,
1: not Chris Harrison. That's the bachelor host, but um, he's canceled. But um, no, uh, what's his name? I, I loved I to catch yeah, a but know. not because, yeah. you know. Ugh. Yeah,
0: yeah. So anyway, he would have to get the father's consent. And obviously the father would be like, oh yeah, because check out what happens here outside of just the sex. In this relationship, the older man was known as the philator. Meaning befriender. And this is P H I L. So it's like
1: pedophile. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Actually, I was going to say it's more like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love.
1: Um, Mm. That's true too.
0: That's hilarious. I didn't actually catch those two things together love, file, and the boy. Oh, God. The boy was known as the kleinos, meaning glorious.
1: Oh, well, that's nice, at least.
0: <laughs> Young boy, flesh is glorious. Oh yeah. Okay, anyway. Uh, um.
1: Wow, that is so creepy that yes. we've been so gross for so long. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, once the Philator acquired his Klinos, here's a description of what would occur. Some of this actually sounds like it's a cool mentorship program.
1: That's how it
0: always starts. That's called grooming. So, quote, the man took the boy out into the wilderness where they spent two months hunting and feasting with friends, learning life skills, respect, and responsibility. It is generally assumed that the philator would begin having sex with the boy soon after taking him into the wilds. Wow. Wow. Oh, but we're doing all these things, like- Feasting? Yeah, and you're stalking prey, you're learning how to provide for your family, all that stuff, yeah. By the way, I'm going to have sex with you relentlessly.
1: Oh my gosh, that's
0: horrifying. Right? Continue. If the boy was pleased how this went, he changed his status from Kleinos to Peristates, or comrade, signifying that he had metaphorically fought in battle alongside his Philator, He then went back to society and lived with him.
1: Whoa. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, fringe benefits here. The Philator would shower the boy with expensive gifts, including an army uniform, right? An ox to be sacrificed to Zeus and a drinking goblet, which was a symbol of spiritual accomplishment, end quote.
1: I mean, I enjoy gifts. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you just come with me. I'll make every one of your dreams come true.
1: And like, all I really want is an ox. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can get me a nice outfit and something to drink out of, but that's what I Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a price. Price paid. Let's do it. Ugh.
1: Oh, man. Wow. Okay.
0: Epilogue mm. to this. Evidently, the boy could actually have control over whether or not he wanted this relationship to continue.
1: Oh, well, that's fair.
0: Right? But he also could have the right to denounce the philator if there was any sexual misconduct. So this was all consensual to a degree.
1: So the sex in the wilderness was not considered sexual misconduct, right? Because the dad gave the permission.
0: Right, right. But let's say they were out hunting Um, and, you know, I don't know, skinning a deer or something. And the old man went, well, I'm really horny right now. Let's go. And the boy says, no. And then he forced himself on him. That's, that's
1: not okay. Okay. Not oh, family. interesting. Yeah. But so the boys did, could refuse. If, but now, do you grow up knowing that this is kind of a way, a rite of passage as a young man?
0: Oh, i Or is I'm this sure. like a secret?
1: I'm sure. You must, they must a, know that.
0: Like as a younger boy, you've seen older boys go off into the wilderness with an older man. You're like, where did they go? Well, he'll be back in a little while. He might live with that man for a while.
1: Wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: I, uh, uh, and again, okay. I'm not declaring any defense of this behavior those were children, and they had sexual activity forced upon them, and I do not mean to glorify that behavior in any way, whether it's acceptable by law or not.
1: No, no, absolutely not, and it's and it's no. not funny. We're not laughing at it. No. We're not making fun of it. We think it's disgusting, but yeah. very interesting.
0: Yeah. So, right, like I said, I am simply reporting on the culture in which the city Dionysia was in, not glorifying any kind of sexual activity for children. What I'm saying is that there was a very free sexual culture in Athens at the time, and probably throughout most of Greece.
1: Right. Wow. But it was common at that time, like, you know, um, the age of consent wasn't a thing yet. So it was probably common that when they reached, you know, puberty, they were considered adults at that time. And also people died younger, you know, their life was younger.
0: Right, right. And it was my understanding that this like special relationship also granted the boy some sort of like special privileges and citizenship because on one hand he came from an aristocratic family and was you know taken in by an aristocratic man so it's like he's probably going to be a citizen anyway but this (laughs) got him just a little bit more edge i guess as it were
1: that's like sleeping your way to the top
0: yep absolutely
1: and so then did some of these boys then go on to marry like be with women or are they? Oh,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yes. And actually it was understood that if you were a citizen and you married a woman and that woman gave birth to men, they were automatically citizens.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a, a lot of uh, levels of like, are you a citizen or what kind of a person are you? And in, in the
1: class systems, right. Yeah. Yeah
0: interesting okay god so okay uh, let's get away from darker topics and get back to theater
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm like what does this have to do with theater
0: natalie i wanted to get you on the program to talk about taking little boys into the woods
1: (laughs) i've learned a lot I actually now know how
0: babies are made. So thank you. Sorry for the, uh, I didn't put a disclaimer on this episode. Okay.
1: Um (laughs) We'll add that in the show notes.
0: (laughs) Now, as I said before, the procession, the Pompeii included the large float for the phallus, but would also include carrying a statue of Dionysus from the temple in Athens to the town of Eleutherae, or at least they'd get on their way there. Once they got to a certain point outside the city walls, they returned the statue to Athens where it was placed in the theater for the remainder of the festival. And this procession of the statue and the phallus might seem excessive, but it actually is something of a reminder from Dionysian legend. Now we can go back to making fun of penis jokes. Okay, great. So, according to myth, Pegasus, the winged horse, carried this wooden statue of Dionysus to the town of Eleutherae. I, I couldn't figure out why. I couldn't figure out for what purpose. Okay. Just Pegasus is like, no, I'm going to get that and took it over somewhere. Now, today, the town of Eleuthera doesn't really exist. There's a fortress there, but Eleutherae is about an hour's drive from uh, central Athens. So it's about a 10-hour walk. Now, according to the legend, the Eleutherians brought the statue to Athens in reverence, but the Athenians did not accept the icon as an image of the god they worshipped. Well, Dionysus, the god, didn't appreciate that. Uh
1: Uh Uh-oh. Don't want to piss him off.
0: No, no, never. So after the Eleutherians left, a peculiar plague affected Athens, and only the men, and only in their private parts. Crabs? (laughs) Could be. Just something. It wasn't comfortable.
1: Oh, chlamydia, for sure.
0: (laughs) Just something. Now soon, (laughs) the men of Athens could not take the pain anymore, so they sought the help of oracles who were basically mystics who mysteriously could speak to the gods. Well, guess what the oracles told them to do? They said that as soon as the Athenian men could accept the divinity of the statue, the plague would be lifted.
1: Oh, of
0: course. Of course. And so they did. And so it was. No. (laughs) Yes. Yes. What? Yep. As soon as they said that, okay, that statue is Dionysus and I love it and it's obviously divine. They were healed you should have tried that
1: with COVID.
0: <laughs> Therefore, the one purpose, the professional fall I served, was a reminder that if you don't appreciate Dionysus, your pee-pee could get infected. Oh,
1: I see that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so every weird they see it going on. Like, uh, do you worship Dionysus? Oh, hell yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah.
1: how <laughs> <laughs> to protect the pee-pee.
0: uh uh-huh. Yep. However, the phallus was also associated with Dionysus in the form of his magical human hybrid attendants, the satyrs. Now, you talked a little bit about the satyrs earlier. We talked about them; they're the half half human, half goat people. What else do you know about them?
1: I, I, I don't. They probably smell too.
0: Uh, they, yeah, I would imagine so. I would imagine so. Well,
1: are they, are they like really horny? Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a way to put it. Um, well, the the satyrs more or less ended up being the poster children for phallic imagery. So we've talked about, like I said, they're half human, half goat. So there's already a little (laughs) horniness involved.
1: Oh Yeah, there you go.
0: Oh, wait, did I say a little horniness? I mean a lot. Basically, the satyrs were always looking for a good time. And if they couldn't find it with anyone, they would come across, and oftentimes they would. But if they couldn't, they often would be depicted in art practicing fellatio on each other.
1: Fun. Oh my gosh, that's so <laughs> funny. Well, they were very close friends, I guess.
0: <laughs> I just There was this one image that I saw and I can't remember. I think it was a mosaic or it was a, maybe even a plate, but it was just one satyr standing up full on and he was raging hard and his buddy was already halfway down the throat with it Wow. And you're like, ooh, let's commit that to a plate.
1: You know what? Why don't you come over for dinner tonight? I'm going to bring out the good China. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Oh, it's just, it's from Greece. Mm -hmm.
0: It's a family relic.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) It's actually actually from the satyrs that we get a new term, satyriasis, which is male sexual addiction while the same condition in women is first known as nymphomania.
1: Interesting. (laughs) Right?
0: And then the latter term became associated with both genders as time went on. Mm -hmm. And while researching for this episode...
1: (laughs) Does satire have anything to do with it? Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, satire, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but satire developed from the word satyr because of the play is that the satyrs were associated with. But like I said, um, we'll talk about that here in we'll a little bit. get later. there, sorry, I got ahead of But the term that, oh, no, you're fine. The term that I found in researching this episode that I'm so pleased was so prevalent that it required somebody to put a term to it. Uh-oh. Ithiphalic, Ithiphalic.
1: Ithiphalic, okay.
0: This means any image or representation of an erect penis oh and boy were those satyrs ever ithophallic.
1: <laughs> wow very specific yeah <laughs> They're like, Wait
0: is it just phallic or is it ithephalic oh it's ithophallic as hell
1: wow <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because whenever i think of the word phallic i always assume it's hard but you know you never can right. assume
0: right right well from the art of the time satyrs always had erect phallus but more so than that many other body parts and accessories also appeared ithophallic. they're often depicted with long and incredibly curved noses much as the phallus below the waist are depicted
1: oh <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound attractive
0: no no the satyrs are also often depicted playing flutes or pipes wow
1: Guess that's what a little shaped like That's a little
0: on the nose. Ah! Or just under it anyway. Oh yeah. Uh, And this is a perfect segue back to theater. So as I've said before, the city Dionysia was mainly comprised of theatrical competition. So in order to be considered a playwright had to write three tragedies, And one other type of play I'll discuss in a moment. Generally, these tragedies were meant to cathartically purge all ill intent from those in attendance. And when I say ill intent, I basically mean anything that is against the gods. Okay. Okay. So you could have free will, but if it was against something that the gods had already proclaimed, it's bad. You're bad. Okay. Okay. That's just kind of the understanding. So because obviously the gods had divine wisdom and because ultimately people are fallible, right? Mm-hmm. just ask zeus why it was okay to seduce and rape so many gods and humans oh wait don't oh. <laughs> right
1: <laughs> yeah he's,
0: he's a god this yeah don't question that yeah 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 i mean duh Ugh. the tragedies would usually result in the complete downfall of the protagonist and therefore would be worth watching but some heavy stuff to sift through Now, it's not necessarily known if this was the purpose of the fourth play these playwrights were supposed to write or not, but I'm sure it served this purpose nonetheless. The fourth play was known as a satyr play and was a comedic alternative to the grimness of the tragedies. Hmm, interesting. The satyr plays usually would mock current political or cultural situations by satirizing a story from Greek mythology. And generally would be in the same theme as the trilogy of tragedies the audience had just witnessed. So like if you had a trilogy about family line having like a a particular penchant towards greed, then the sadder play would be a funny play, but still a good moral lesson about greed.
1: Uh, uh Uh-huh. Okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now, as you might recall the ancient Greek tragedies would use a chorus, which was like something of a singular character, but is made up of many actors who would all speak the lines of dialogue in unison. The chorus would kind of represent the voice of the collective of people that are involved in the story. So like in Oedipus Rex, the chorus is made up the people of Thebes who are the subjects of King Oedipus. And the chorus would also have something of a leader, someone who could speak by himself, but still represented the chorus. So in sadder plays, The chorus was made up entirely of satyrs, as can be suggested. Mm -hmm. This is where the comedy part starts to come in. (laughs) Okay. You see, as we've talked about before, the satyrs weren't weren't really built of the most noble of stuff. And as I've mentioned before, yes, they were human-goat hybrid creatures and were outright lewd pretty much all the time. I like to think of them as having the same demeanor as the gremlins from the movies, but (laughs) X-rated.
1: Yeah, that's good. And you throw water on them, and all of a sudden they, they're like,
0: okay. But it's all about, you know, they're just there having a good time. Like, I watch the second movie with my boys all the time, and there's one who's a nudist. He's like an exhibitionist. And like, a, grem- like, a nude gremlin? Yeah. Like, he has his little trench coat, and like, some, some woman comes in front of him and she, he flashes her. He's naked, just like all the rest of the gremlins. He's just getting a kick out of it.
1: Oh my gosh. That's so funny. I, mean, oh, I was actually really afraid of the gremlin. I was.
0: I was too, and then the second one came out and they went, oh my God, this is actually kind of funny. This is yeah. really funny. Yeah, I
1: should watch it now as an adult.
0: See, there you go. The satyrs were pretty much always in various stages of being wine drunk and would always complicate the lives of the characters in the play due to their debauchery.
1: I have a few friends like that.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm as we do. But perhaps the most charming characteristic of the satyrs was something I've alluded to earlier a few times. They seem to be perpetually horny
1: man
0: we only know this because of a particular costume piece that was always worn by a satyr can you guess it was a phallus
1: oh okay
0: it was a wiener it was yeah from what we can tell the phallus was usually a stuffed leather sack or a roll of leather bound by rope or twine it was
1: a strap on
0: it was a strap on (laughs) It will be strapped in front of the actor near the belt line and would either be designed to stick straight out in all its ithefellic glory or to dangle and flop around at will.
1: Wow. <laughs> what an odd tradition.
0: Uh, can you imagine that showing up to like, you got cast in a thing and you're like, on the first day, they're like, okay, here's your costume. Like, well, these are just uh, fur shorts and you gave me this uh, stick. It's like, oh yeah, that sticks on the front of the shorts and sticks straight out. You can just right. people around with it if you want.
1: Oh, my gosh. That would be like if we showed up to, you know, Saturday Night Live and all the male actors had phalluses, you know, as their costume.
0: And they're Like, what? This is just uh, how funny it goes, right? Satire. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Now, the chorus leader for the satyrs was always Silenus, the drunk father of the satyrs. Now, this was actually quite perfect because not only did it directly link the Satyrs to Dionysus and thus the festival, but it also provided a comedic character in direct contrast to the protagonist of Satyr plays. It was kind of like a, a straight man, funny man setup, a lot like Abbott and Costello.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Love them. Yeah, right? So satyr plays, they must have been immensely popular simply based on the number of times that they are depicted on vases. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, from what we can tell, they most likely were saved for the final day of co- play competition so the audience could lead the festival on a real high note. It was either that or a satyr play followed each trilogy of tragedies on the three days of play viewing. Either way... The festival would end with a good laugh.
1: That's like when I watch something scary or something, mm-hmm. and then I make Jared, that's my husband for anyone who doesn't know, but I'm, I make <laughs> us watch like a palate cleanser, and it's usually The Penguins of Madagascar. <laughs> or um, So like I'm now really into this show called Waffles and Mochi, which is for actual two-year-olds. <laughs> but, you know, if we watch a murder doc, I need a, I need a good... Something happy. So I get yep. it. I need to programming.
0: I need to know that the world isn't all just bad choices against the gods.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Now sadly though, only one, one, one full script of a sadder play survives from antiquity.
1: Oh wow.
0: Yeah. And it's a play called Cyclops by the namesake of this podcast, Euripides. Oh, And it tells the classic story of Odysseus blinding a cyclops, but with a lot more humor.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this doesn't sound very funny. He's actually really mean. He only has
0: one eye. He got him right in the eye. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as the story goes here, Odysseus and his men uh, land on an island completely populated by these one-eyed giants. Turns out that these cyclops really enjoy eating people and start picking off Odysseus's crew, two men at a time. Oh, like, they're hungry. Yeah, oh, goink. goink. Oh, good. Oh, God, they ate two of us. Run. Odysseus and some of his men are able to escape to a cave where the story of the play actually begins. The whole play takes place outside the entrance of this cave. Uh, it belongs to one particular cyclops named Polyphemus, who is the same cyclops written about in the Odyssey. Polyphemus has a group of slaves comprised completely of satyrs who spend their days tending to a flock of the master's sheep. Odysseus and some of his men arrive at this cave and steal a little bit of food when they are discovered by Silenus and the satyrs. Okay. O- oh yeah, okay. No, Odysseus no. thinks quickly and offers the slaves some of the food he has just stolen and some of the wine that they have brought with them.
1: That's very generous. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, obviously not being able to resist an offer of free wine, Silenus agrees to hide Odysseus here away from his master and the other Cyclopes. That's how you pronounce you. it. Cyclopes. C- Cyclopes. However, Polyphemus soon shows up and immediately Silenus rats him out and reveals that there are men in the cave and that they are planning to rob the Cyclops blind. <laughs> How's that oh. foreshadowing? <laughs> the Cyclops demands to know the name of the man who plans to rob him. Odysseus again thinks quickly and replies, my name is no one. <laughs> oh,
1: well. <laughs> yeah. Wait, is that why we call some... Okay, is this why we call penises one-eyed monsters?
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> um,
1: I'm just saying. No,
0: but if any of my listeners would like to try to uh, connect these two things, that would be amazing.
1: Yeah, we'll leave it up to them.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, Odysseus saying, my name is no one, doesn't do too well for Odysseus and his men. True to his cycloptic nature, Polyphemus steals offstage with two of the crew where he completely devours them. Oh no. Obviously horrified by what he has just been privy to, Odysseus starts to make some plans to escape. The next scene, we see Silenus and Cyclops drinking wine together the next day and basically trying to outdo one another on how much they can drink before they pass out.
1: Uh-huh, okay.
0: <laughs> now, I don't know what it's like to drink with a mythical one-eyed beast. I would imagine they can hold their liquor. Definitely. Yeah, I I assume this because the Cyclops then forces Silenus to go back into the cave with him, probably for some forced sexual gratification.
1: Oh, of course.
0: Right, because you can do that.
1: He went into the cave with the one-eyed monster.
0: Oh my God. (laughs) The one-eyed monster forced me to go into the cave. I had had quite a bit to drink. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I think it's okay. Oh my God. (laughs) Wow. Wow.
1: I consented. <laughs>
0: <laughs> While they are gone, Odysseus enlists several of the satyrs to help him with his plan. They all agree, and when the cyclops returns from his one-sided tryst, still fairly drunk, most of the satyrs wimp out and leave Odysseus to fend for himself. Which he does! He takes the cyclops by surprise, no difficult trick because the monster is stone drunk, and burns out the creature's eye. Oh. Wait, it's are you are, are, are you being sad for the person that just forced some sex on?
1: Yeah, no, I know. I think it's cause I'm imagining the Cyclops looks like one of the minions from the <laughs> cartoons. So it actually looks like a, it actually looks adorable to me and I now feel sad for it, but I'm sure it's ugly as fuck. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Manana. <laughs> that's what I'm seeing in my head, but that's because I have the brain of a four-year-old.
0: That's okay. I, I, I'd be very interested to find out what you watch after we get done with this episode. Yeah. Um, so he's burned out the creature's eye. Okay. The newly blinded Cyclops cries out to the other monsters on the island to come to his aid. They shout back to ask what happened, and the drunk Cyclops howls, No one blinded me! No one blinded me! That's pretty funny. (laughs) Obviously, none of the others come to his aid. (laughs) This is where the pompous Odysseus arrogantly reveals his identity out of foolish pride. But, while he does manage to escape, Odysseus must not realize that Polyphemus, the Cyclops, is actually the son of Poseidon, god of the seas. And because he blinded Poseidon's son, he has a really rough time on the seas on the way home. Oh, wow. The end.
1: That's the end of the story?
0: That's the end of the play. So see, don't mess with the gods. Okay. (laughs) Just pluck a story from mythology. Tell it with satyrs. Everybody gets drunk. Um, something kind of funny happens, and then we're like, "Oh shit, we got to put the uh, like uh, divinity and how we can't defy the gods somehow." Wait, wait, remember he's his son. Oh yeah, great. Okay, Odysseus's trip home sucks.
1: Wah, wah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Okay.
0: Now, in present day, uh oh. There is a small Greek town named Tirnovos, which consists of about fifteen thousand people. And I didn't really know how to end this episode, but then I found this. Uh oh. They- this is bloody perfect. Oh. On the first Monday in Lent, of the calendar of the Greek Orthodox Church, a festival has come to be celebrated in Tirnovos, which is known as Clean Monday.
1: I don't know. This sounds not clean.
0: No? Okay. While there isn't really much formalized theatrical activity, this is a festival which honors the now pagan god Dionysus. And here's a short description of what one can expect when attending this festival, which has now gained international tourist buzz. Quote, people eat phallus-shaped bread, drink through phallus-shaped straws from phallus-shaped cups.
1: Oh my God, this is so amazing.
0: Kiss ceramic phalluses, sit on a phallus-shaped throne and sing dirty Greek songs about the phallus. The festival symbolizes renewal and rebirth, a tradition dating back thousands of years.
1: What? That is so amazing.
0: Oh. Come prepared, Passers-by tend to be grabbed and rocked over a pot of boiling burrani spinach soup while a ceramic penis is placed between their legs. What? They must kiss the phallus, then drink sipporo, a strong local spirit, from its tip, and then stir the soup before they're allowed to go.
1: What? That is... Okay, they lost me now.
0: Phallus kissers are rewarded with ash streaks on their faces, which presumably absolved them from having to go through the procedure again.
1: Wow.
0: And that is the story of the phallus.
1: Oh my gosh, I love that. Well, it's funny, I have a, by marriage, I have a Greek cousin so oh, I'm gonna okay. ask her about that festival. Maybe she out. I don't know.
0: I'd be very careful about how you preface that. Listen, I was on this podcast and we had a really interesting topic. How much how many dicks are in your house?
1: Yeah. Do you go know to that penis festival thing?
0: <laughs> What's the soup like? Um
1: Yeah, is it is it pea soup? What kind of soup? Oh no, spinach it,
0: soup. It was a spinach soup. Yeah. No.
1: That actually sounds really good. I spinach. know, right?
0: <laughs> I don't know. I I I've been in, in trance by the idea that the phallus was so prevalent in Greek life. Yeah. Had to relate around the theater. And then I'm, I'm studying for the last episode and it's like, and then they carried an enormous phallus through this town. And you're like, oh, uh, excuse me?
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> it's so fascinating.
0: But I mean, like, when you take it in context, it was a very freely sexual open culture in in Greece you know they were like okay yeah I mean sex is sex if I'm into it I come and talk to you and I say are you into it does no matter what you're into or no matter what your gender is if you say I'm into it you can go do that thing yeah you know but also that it's like look we decorate this large dildo it's probably like 20 feet long there's a statue on it and a guy rides the statue and right you know I mean that's like the Snoopy balloon at Macy's every year. You're like, here it comes again. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's so <laughs> funny. Oh my God. And it is funny how now like with, with like, things like bachelorette parties, you know, mm,
0: mm-hmm. you drink out of
1: penis straws, you drink out of penis cups. Like, so it is kind of funny and I'm sure many bachelorette parties do not know the uh, history of the phallus. And I would take it upon myself that the next bachelorette party I'm invited to I will tell them this story, and I'm sure everyone will love it and be fascinated. You're like,
0: okay, before we take another shot, let's all offer a prayer to Dionysus, please.
1: Yeah, ladies, gather around.
0: Actually, one thing that I couldn't figure out how to put it in here was, you know, just how free and open the uh, sexual culture was in Greece. There was a lot of suggestion that this covering we have of ourselves all the time. Like, mm-hmm. you know, bodies were bodies back then. They were like, well, you could cover it or you, you don't have to. I mean, you could drape a curtain over you and whatever falls out, falls out. But in an earlier Greek culture, there was some imagery of women having like this, it was almost like a corset, but mm-hmm. then their chest could be completely bare. Oh. And like they had a, a, a dress that would come up over their shoulders, but their chest would be out. And that huh. was just like, oh, well, that's that's just what she's got, I guess. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's only become, you know, within the last, you know, couple thousand or thousand years or so that they're like, we can't see those things. Those are only I know Nuh uh, nuh uh uh-uh. And I mean, nipple. Right. And this whole debate about, well, w- well, women can't breastfeed in public, except for when the baby's hungry, you twit. You know. Right. <laughs>
1: I mean, what do you expect us to hide away for um, months? You can
0: go to the bathroom. You can go to the bathroom. We don't need to see that.
1: Yeah, but mom's tired. (laughs) Mom's tired.
0: (laughs) Mom's tired and let's all gather around the Maypole because that has nothing to do with this story at all.
1: Yeah, wow, that's (laughs) so interesting. Well, I really enjoyed the palace story. And um, Uh I also feel honored that you picked this one for me.
0: (laughs) It was one of the first things. I was like, oh my God, I got to talk about the fellas. Oh, that's Natalie's. Just definitely.
1: (laughs) Naturally. I mean, thank you.
0: (laughs) Well... There we go. We learned a little bit about the phallus and uh just how,
1: and how babies are made
0: and how babies are made. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, there there's some things going on there that we don't need to discuss. But yeah. we've, already, we've already driven away like our our four few people who would be driven away by uh, sexual immorality yes. on this show. So yeah, they're they're out.
1: But you know what? That's okay. We'll get four new ones who That's will. That's right are seeking this.
0: That's right. This is like Howard Stern. All the people who hate to listen to it are listening intensely. And all the people who love to listen to it turned it off half an hour ago.
1: Exactly. And you know (laughs) that you've made it when you have someone who hates you.
0: Oh, God.
1: Well, that's so fun.
0: (laughs) I hope you weren't too offended. And I'm like, Natalie, here's some (laughs) facts. We're going to talk about this.
1: It takes a lot to offend me, which I think (laughs) you've known through Uh the years Uh of knowing Uh me.
0: Anyway, well, Natalie, that was a lot of fun.
1: <laughs> Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Hope we can do it again sometime. I promise I won't pick as disgusting of a topic, but I've got a lot a lot of material coming.
1: I hope that you promise to
0: pick as do.
1: disgusting. Mm. That's, that's my challenge to you.
0: Well... Anyway, my friends and listeners, this has been my friend Natalie Lander and myself, Aaron Odom from Trident Theater, and I'm going to go ahead and sign off here. Thank you for checking in on us on another episode of Euripides Humanities, and I will see you at intermission.